Sean told me I could uh, go ahead and uh, speak on any subject that I was comfortable with. And uh, since that's the case, I want to let you all know I uh, received my dis or I wrote my dissertation a couple years ago on theology. So we're going to be here for about five hours. <laughs> Take your Bibles, if you would, please turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and while you're turning over there, I want to say this to you. Oftentimes, when guys go to speak someplace or something, uh, the light, if you will, is kind of placed upon them. One of the things that we very seldom ever speak about is our, our mates in ministry. And I want to introduce to you my wife, who's sitting right back over there. Marcia, raise your hand, if you will. This next June, we will celebrate our 45th year of uh, wedding anniversary. And I told her if she's lucky, it'll make 46. Uh, but I want to let you know, if you've ever been around ministers, uh, lot, oftentimes they can tell you how, how uh, beneficial it is to have a, a wife that's supportive. And uh, I, I'll tell you, I get that oftentimes because sometimes after I finish a sermon, we go out and get in a car and go to eat someplace, you know, just like normally everybody does. She'll look at me and go, uh, that was pathetic. And... Uh, I take the woman to lunch anyway. <laughs> Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 40. Oh, I'm supposed to be giving signals, aren't I? I'm sorry. We're going to talk about here this morning four reasons why the church comes together. And we're going to see that in verse 42, but we're going to do four, uh, I'm going to read 40 through 44. Uh, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Acts 2.42, we're going to look at this morning specifically here. Uh, that says, again, if you will... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Those are the four reasons that the church comes together each Lord's Day. Now, there's other things that we can do, obviously, but those are the four main reasons, and we're going to look at those this morning, if you would, please. Uh, beginning, as I said, with the apostles' doctrine. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20 says this, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And of course these are the words of Jesus. Everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now let me just say this. There's something out there that's called the Apostles Creed. That didn't come from Jesus. That was man made. So what is the Apostles Doctrine? It's everything that Jesus taught them. And we are to take everything that Jesus taught them because they taught it to us. It's what you have in your hands. It's the Bible. And we're to take everything they gave us and in turn learn it and teach it to others. Now, just to give you an example. Do you know that the Bible not only teaches us that we're responsible for what we know in the Bible... But the Bible also teaches us we're responsible for what we can know. My philosophy in education, especially biblical education, has always been this. 
to learn everything you can learn. It doesn't make any difference how many degrees you may amass in the process. The degrees really don't mean that much. What makes the most difference is what you can learn and what you can pass on to others. My wife told me the other day, well, let me back up just a second. One of the main reasons why we're back here in Indiana is because we've moved back up here to help her with a cousin uh, of hers whose husband passed away and has two severely handicapped daughters. And so we moved back up to help, uh, help their mother take care of the girls. And my wife said to me the other day, you need to go back to school. You're bored. No, I'm not bored. I just need to be doing more than what I'm doing. But one of the things that I do want to do is learn more about the Bible. Because my idea, as I said, is the more I can learn, the more I can pass on. And it's not just me. That's the way it's supposed to be with all Christians. All of us are supposed to learn more. And Jesus said, as I said here, Jesus said that he told the apostles, uh, teach them everything that I have uh, taught you and I command you and I will surely be with you. Now, he said that not only to the apostles, but he says that to us as well. He's going to be with us as we teach. You ever have people just walk up to you sometimes, maybe they know you go to church and they begin, or somebody, a neighbor or something comes over and, and ask you a question? One of the things I like as a, as, a, as a preacher, teacher, if you will, is this. I love it when people say, I have a question. Not to show off the amount of knowledge that someone has, but I love it because you know how people usually come up with questions? They have to be reading, they have to be thinking about things. And when you're thinking about things, you begin to have questions. When you begin to have questions, you ask the questions, you get the answers, hopefully. Are there answers to everything in life? No, absolutely not. One Sunday morning, I had a group of kids. They must have had an interesting discussion about the flood in their Sunday school classroom because one of them, several of them come running up to me afterwards, and one in particular says, was just dying to, I have a question, I have a question. What'd they do with the fish? They didn't do anything. They just swam alongside the boat. That answered their question. And sometimes with my twisted little mind, I try to think of questions like that as well. But if we're learning, we're teaching. If we're teaching, we need to teach the truth. Jesus cautioned the apostles in Matthew 16, 6. He said to his disciples that he wanted them to beware, be on the lookout for the leaven. That's doctrine. That's teaching of, and he said, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Why? Well, were the Pharisees and Sadducees teaching everything that Moses had given to them? No, absolutely not. I use this as an illustration sometimes. If you look at the five books that Moses wrote, they're about this thick. All right? And then if you look at the explanation that the rabbis had for the law, it's about that thick. What's that usually mean? Well, if you ever listen to politicians on TV, which I would advise you not to do, but at any rate, if you listen to one of them give a speech, they always have somebody afterwards who has to explain everything that they just said. And it takes them 40 minutes to say what he said in 20 and you still don't know any more than you did before. 
And sometimes it's best just to go to the original and find out what it says in the original and go with that. You know, like the Ten Commandments? Well, we still have those Ten Commandments in the New Testament, except now there's only nine. Jesus did away with one and he changed one. But the rest of them are still there. And he said, what was one of the greatest commandments Jesus ever, ever gave to us? Love our neighbors as ourselves. You think mankind could learn to use that nowadays? I sure wish they would, but they're really not. Let's go on here. All right. He gave us the good news. Well, what exactly is the good news? The good news is the gospel. Uh, it's not full of hypocrisy. We see this in Luke chapter uh, uh, 12 and verse 21, talking about the hypocrisy that, uh, that they were to be aware, uh, to, that they were to guard against. Uh, let me turn around here because I don't have that one right in front of me. Uh, meanwhile, when the crowd of many thousands had gathered together and they were there, uh, yeah, they were there what? <laughs> Trampling one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples and then it said, be in a guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. Now, I want to caution you when you turn on religious programming, if you will, get your Bible. And follow. Make sure what they're saying is exactly what the Bible says. Because you know and I know that there are a lot of people on the television and on the radio nowadays that are saying all kinds of things. And most of it's not true. I'm not saying that because they're the diff different denominations or anything. They're not, it's not true because it's not what the Bible says. Let me give you an example. How many times have you heard, don't give me a show of hands, how many times have you heard people say the gospel says, or the Bible says God wants us healthy, wealthy, and wise? Isn't that nice? It's not true. Godliness is, or cleanliness is next to godliness. Can't find that anywhere in the Bible. But let me tell you what you can find in the Bible, and I guarantee you, most of those people who tell you cleanliness is next to godliness won't, won't believe it's actually in the Bible. You ever heard the term drop in the bucket? It's in the Bible, but the other one isn't. That's why it's so important for us to get into the Word, find out what the Bible actually says. As I said, we were given the, the gospel, the good news. In Acts chapter 7, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2 beginning with verses 23 and 24. All right. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. God knew before he created that he was going to have to give his son over to the sinful desires of man to pay the price that only Jesus Christ could pay because man couldn't pay it on his own. And God allowed Jesus, Jesus even allowed himself to be taken, to be brutalized the way that he was, and then to be crucified in the horrific way that he was. Now we know, we understand, the Bible tells us that Jesus was nailed to the cross, and that's true physically. We've all heard the expression, or all heard the, the phrase, if you will, that Love held Jesus on the cross, and it did. 
It amazes me every time I think about the, the crucifixion of Jesus. That he could have come off that cross any time he wanted. But he didn't do it. Why didn't he do it? Because of his love for you and for me. Now we all love people. We have a lot of people in our lives that we love. I love my wife dearly. Wait, she probably went into shock. No, she knows that. But you know what? Don't misunderstand this. She's probably the only one in this room this morning that I would probably willingly lay down my life for. Why? Oh, I like the rest of you. Don't get me wrong. I like you. I don't know you. You don't know me. But when you really get to know someone, when you really get to love someone, you're willing to lay down your life for them. There's nothing in this world that I wouldn't do for my wife. If a doctor came to me and said, Ron, in order for her to continue on living, we have to take your heart and give it to her, then take it. We have to take your kidneys, then take them. Take whatever it is you have to have. If it's going to make her quality of life better, then do it. Why? Because I love her. Jesus loved us so much that he gave his life. Verse 23, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Now don't just think of the dying process. The agony of death there means the separation from God. You see, because you know and I know that when he was on the cross, for the only time in history past, the, pre the then present and history future, God the Son was separated from God the Father because of the sins of mankind. The Bible says that God turned his back on his Son at that time. Do you know, in the Jewish culture, when a family member is excommunicated, if you will, they would tear their clothes as a sign of, of, of sorrow. And when a family member was excommunicated, when they were kicked out, of the family, the family from that point in time could never mention their names again. God kicked out his son because of you and because of me. But thankfully, God the Father gave God the Son the power he needed to come forth out of that grave and ending that agony, that separation of death. Because you see, that's what the second death in the Bible talks about. I think one of the dumbest statements that a human being can possibly make, and, 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 and you know it and I know it, we've heard people say this all the time, is to tell another person to go to an eternal damnation. That has to be the most ignorant statement ever made. Especially because they don't understand what they're saying. You're telling a person you want them to be separated from God for all of eternity? Do you realize what you're saying when you say something like that? If you did, you would never say it. You never want to be around anybody that would say it. I don't want anyone to go to hell. I want everyone to come to Jesus Christ. Now, am I realistic? Sure I am, because the Bible tells us. That there's only going to be a remnant of people that are going to come to Jesus. 
Do you realize that if Jesus came back right now, statistically, two-thirds, two-thirds of the population of the world, and that's how many billion people? Seven. Seven billion people on the face of the earth. Two-thirds of those people are going to hell. No question asked. Now, does that tell us we have a lot to do? Oh, it sure does tell us we have a lot to do. We have to get this good news out that Jesus did come. He's not a figment of someone's imagination. He was real. And what he did in Jerusalem was real. He suffered and he died for their sins, the same as he died for ours. And because of that, God raised him from that agony, from that separation. And the Bible says that he sits now at the right hand of the Father. Right hand in the Bible oftentimes symbolizes power, but it also symbolizes a readiness. And Jesus is ready. I love the book of Acts. And one of the reasons I love the book of Acts is you read in there when Stephen was being stoned to death. There was Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. And when Stephen looked up into heaven and saw Jesus, what was Jesus doing? Well, he was sitting there waiting for Stephen to die. No, he wasn't. He was standing up. I like to think in my mind that Jesus was standing there like this. How do you greet a friend? You're standing. You're ready. I was at a funeral yesterday down in Danville, Illinois. And met some friends down there that I hadn't seen in quite a while. And we greeted one another. We didn't stand back from one another and go, Hi. No, we greeted each other. Why? Because that's what you do with friends. And Jesus is your friend. Now, sometimes people will take that friendship, if you will, and abuse it. We know that even from Jesus' own life. What did Judas do? He abused that friendship. Friendship is something that all of us should have, even within the church. Oh, oftentimes we refer to it as fellowship. Fellowship. All right? And in this fellowship, that incorporates a friendship that we have. That's one of the reasons why we're here each Sunday morning, to celebrate this friendship that we have together in, in, in worship. Oh, oftentimes when we think of, of fellowship, we usually think of, of dinners. You know, they're oftentimes called fellowship dinners. Uh, one of the things that uh, we used to do in the church in Florida that we were at was every month we had fellowship dinner. That's why, never mind. Uh, I went there and weighed 150 pounds. It's none of your business what I weigh now. Fellowship dinners. Fellowship is a time, you know, some of the best times you'll ever spend in your life, not just as a Christian, but some, some of the best time you'll ever spend in your life, hopefully, are around tables because when you're at a table and you're sitting and you're eating with folks you you're relaxed that's one of the reasons why i in the few bible studies i've been in here since we've been up here i i really like the the the, the time sitting around the tables and this is one of the things that i've always done at churches where i've been preaching one of the first things i would do in a in a sunday school classroom is take the tables usually put them in a u-shape 
and have one over in the corner over there. That's because that's where the coffee pot went. Because, you see, the 13th commandment is, thou shalt have coffee in class. If not, you'll be stoned to death by the preacher. But it makes it comfortable. And when people are comfortable, then they relax. And when they relax, they begin to talk. And when they begin to talk, they begin to fellowship. And they begin to ask questions. Some of those little questions, you know, like, what did they do with the fish? Acts 2.42 tells us, and all the believers were together and had everything in common. Now, don't let someone take this verse and say to you, you see, this teaches us that the church should live as a commune. No, it doesn't. It said all believers had everything together. I'm sorry, all the believers were together and had everything in common. It doesn't say they had everything together. They had everything in common. If you know a fellow Christian that has a need, you have an obligation to meet that need. So there'll be a sign-up sheet in the back to take me out to lunch. No, there won't. But we need to have the fellowship. And one of the greatest times of fellowship that we have each Lord's Day is communion. We fellowship together with Him in the breaking of bread. That's a time that we remember what Jesus did for us. Using verse 46, He talks about in this chapter that the church came together on the first day of the week to break bread. Now that term in Greek for breaking bread could be used either way. It could be used in talking about communion, or it could be used in talking about a regular meal. However, in this particular case, I believe it's definitely talking about communion. They came together to break bread. The purpose that Jesus gave that evening uh, before he was betrayed, as, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he, he took bread and he broke it to symbolize his body. You know something interesting? I told you all ago, I love the book of Acts. Go back in the book of Acts after, I'm sorry, not the book of Acts, in the Gospels, uh, after Jesus was uh, uh, resurrected. Uh, two of the two disciples, two followers, were walking down the road to Emmaus, remember? And Jesus talked with them, and he acted like he didn't know what was going on, and they basically asked him, you know, like, duh, where have you been for the last three days? And they didn't recognize him until Jesus did what? He broke the bread. And when he broke the bread, they recognized exactly who he was. Breaking of bread is important to us, especially communion. We remember who Jesus is. The bread symbolizes his body, yes. And we know the Bible teaches us that he was, he was like the Paschal Lamb and that his bones were not broken. That's true, his bones weren't broken. But his body was. You see, when you consider your skin as a living tissue, oh, that skin was broken. That skin was so brutalized. When you think about the beating that he took, the Bible says that Jesus was beaten so bad that his mother didn't even recognize him. Now, moms, do you think you can stand to be around a child who's so injured that you could hardly recognize who they are? I've been around some mothers that have had children 
severely injured. They knew who they were. But to have a child in such a such a, a state of injury that it's almost impossible to tell who they are. But yet the Bible says that's how Mary was when she looked on Jesus after he was brutalized. But we remember him each Lord's Day. As I said, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 talks about they came together on the first day of the week to break bread. Paul spoke to the people because he intended to leave them the next day. But he kept on until midnight. Now, there are some things in the scriptures, of course, that we need to take literally, but not everything. Because you see, if we're going to take everything literal in the Bible, that means, guess what? I'm going to be here preaching until midnight. And one of you guys has to fall out a third-story window. I'm not sure how you're going to do that, but you got to... I mean, if you're going to take everything literal... Of course, we don't take everything in the Bible literal. There are a lot of things that we do take literal. And one of them is the fact that Jesus said that we're to do in remembrance of Him the breaking of bread. To remember what He did for us. That it was His body upon which the sins of mankind were placed. That's why that body looks so distorted. So ugly. Now let me give you a little more insight, if you will, on me personally. Besides being a preacher, I've worked in the funeral business on and off now for 25 years. I've been around some ugly bodies because of disease, because of literally not trying to freak you out, or because of their bodies being mauled in accidents and so on. So I'm, I've been around some grotesque-looking bodies. But in my mind's eye, the ugliest body that I've never seen in person, but I can only envision it in my mind, had to be the body of Jesus. Because he took on the sins of mankind. You couldn't literally see it. But the mere fact that he took on the sins of mankind upon his body. And that body could only be made clean by his own blood. That's why when we gather around each Sunday for communion. And we think about his body and his blood. It's so extremely important for us to remember, if you will, the words spoken in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. It's not the cup, is this not the cup of thanksgiving? Do you give thanks that Jesus took your sins upon himself? We should be thankful each Lord's Day. And give thanks because of the preparation of that blood of Christ. That blood which is applied to us. That cup of thanksgiving. Do you know that in the Jewish Passover, there were four different glasses of wine, if you will, that they used in a Passover feast. And I think it's so interesting that when Jesus was in the upper room with the apostles, he used the emblems that he chose to represent his body and his blood that the Jews were familiar with. You see, because they used the matzah, the unleavened bread, to remember the bitterness that their ancestors had gone through. 
And Jesus said, remember this bitterness that I'm going to go through for you. And he did that hours before he began his physical suffering. I say hours before he began his physical suffering because it was only going to be a short period of time before he was going to begin his mental anguish. And please, mis- please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. When you read of the account of Jesus being in the garden and his suffering there, and he comes back, remember, three times to talk to Peter, James, and John to encourage them, to encourage him. Now, you can disagree with me on this, and that's okay. I contend that was the worst suffering that Jesus ever encountered in human form. To know that he was about to die because he was taking on all of the sins of mankind. And yet, he did. And the Bible says that anguish, that anguish was so severe that it caused his physical body to break out that his sweat was blood. Now, there's a big, long 75-cent medical term for that. You're not going to use it because... Five seconds from now, you won't remember it anyway. And what difference does it make that you can pronounce Latin? He sweat as drops of blood. His body was in that much agony. Oh, don't misunderstand. He was going to go through the worst torture that people could go through. As a matter of fact, you study the crucifixion of Jesus, you find out that most soldiers that beat prisoners, they never lived through the beating. The vast majority of them never lived long enough to be crucified if they were beaten beforehand. Because they beat them so badly. That whip that they used with pieces of glass, with pieces of metal, pieces of bone, it literally bit into whatever it part of the body it hit so that when they pulled it back it ripped flesh it tried to separate muscle from bone that's why Jesus was beaten so badly that even his own mother couldn't recognize him why the blood poured from his body the way that it did and yet we're to remember this as thanksgiving And we should. I am thankful each Lord's Day when I pick up that loaf and that cup that I remember that He did this for me. I'm not discounting anyone else. He did it for me. And because He did it for me, I don't have to think about the possibility of going to hell. I'm not going. I'm going to heaven. And when I get to heaven, I hope that I get to see the exact same thing that Stephen saw. And I say I hope. I use that in the New Testament term of hope. You see, in the New Testament term of hope, the the Greek word doesn't mean maybe it'll happen. The Greek word means it definitely will happen. I hope to see Jesus standing, arms out, greeting me as a friend. He's my friend. He saved my life. Not just for 
time here on earth. But he has saved my life for time eternal. I've said one of my ambitions in eternity is to spend a thousand years talking to the apostles. I used to say I want to talk to Peter for a thousand years and ask him, how could you have been so dumb? But you know what? Peter would have to look at me for a thousand years and go, and how could you have been so dumb? Oh, I love Peter. Don't get me wrong. I love Peter. Other than Peter, the only person I know who is, who is extremely apt at sticking his foot in his mouth is me. I can not only stick my foot in my mouth, I can put them both in there and wiggle my toes vigorously. Because if it wasn't for messing up, I couldn't do a lot of things. And Marcia, don't say a word. And of course, one of the last reasons, or the last reason listed here, if you will, that we come together is for prayer. The book of Acts emphasizes the fact that we need to pray a lot. Let me give you a statistics, and I'm a statistic, and I'm oftentimes not real hept on statistics because you can prove a lot of things with numbers. It doesn't necessarily mean it's right. When I got into the ministry, it was said then the average prayer life of the Americans was three minutes. Years later, now the average prayer time of Americans is two minutes. How much can you talk to someone in two minutes? Well, you might say it depends on who you're talking with and what you're talking about. Let me put it to you this way. How much time can you spend talking with a friend? And how much can you say in two minutes? We need, we need to be in prayer, not only in our public lives, but in our private lives as well. People watch us as Christians to see how we react to things, what we do with things. Oh, and, and I, I love it when people say, you know, Christians should never get angry. Have you ever read the Bible? Really? I mean, when people say that, you ever read the Bible? Jesus became angry. The Bible tells us there's things we're supposed to be angry about. We oftentimes, and believe me, I'm one of the world's worst. We oftentimes put our anger on the wrong things. Things that we should be angry about, we're not angry about at all. When's the last time you got upset, as I said earlier? When's the last time you got upset... When you heard someone use God's name a wrong way. We don't get angry about those kind of things. And we should. But people will watch us to see how we're going to react to things. And they watch to see if you as a Christian, if you believe, if you say you believe in prayer, are you, prayer, are you really praying? Now, of course, I've heard the old joke, and so have you. Uh, as long as teachers give, uh, give tests in school, there will always be prayers. Let me tell you, that's true even in Bible colleges. I can't tell you how many times we would go to class uh, in undergraduate school, and the professor would say there would be, a, there would be a test, and 25 students would break out in prayer because they didn't study the night before. 
there's so much to say about prayer. We really just don't have enough time this morning to do all of it. But if you think about prayer this way, just think about prayer as being conversation between yourself and a close friend. And that close friend is like a friend that you've never had in your life. There's absolutely nothing you can't tell Jesus. And some of the best times to tell him is when you're in, especially when you're in those kind of situations. When you're angry, tell him you're angry. Tell him why you're angry. When you're upset about whatever it is, my brother-in-law, and this is why I was down in Danville, Illinois. Brother-in-law's father had passed away. They were at the hospital in the room with his dad, and his dad was in the dying process. They sang songs, and they prayed. One of the prayers kind of went something like this. God, he's leaving us. We don't like it. We don't want to say goodbye. And there were a lot of tears. And there's going to be more tears. But we know that his time has come. And we know where he's going. And since he's leaving our presence, and we don't like it, but he's coming into yours, we're ready for him to go. And shortly after that, he died. Can you pray a prayer like that to God? When you have a loved one that's in the process of dying? I hope you can. I hope you can do even better than that. I hope you can pray a prayer to God that goes something like this. I have a friend who doesn't know Jesus or doesn't know him well. Can you use me to help them know him better? Can I be used of you to help them to know him better? And if so, here I am. Prayer brings a lot of things together. You can have a lot of disagreements. Now, I know this doesn't happen here. I hope and pray it never did, never will. You've probably heard horror stories about board meetings. All the church leaders are going, oh, yeah, no, no, no. I have been in some board meetings where we, we had practically had knockdown fights. That's sad. But you know one of the best ways to end disputes with people? Have prayer. You know they say music soothes the soul? So does prayer. So does prayer. That's why I say go to God. In whatever circumstance you're in, go to God. You know one of the times that we very seldom ever really go to God in prayer? Is when we're happy. And that's one of the times, that's one of the best times for us to go to prayer is when we're happy. Thank God for the happy state that we're in, for the happiness that's taking place. Let him know. You know, sometimes I get a kick out of going to different churches. I have been in some churches where I would get up to speak and I would look out and think, you know, there mu- half the congregation must have been sucking lemons on the way in. Man, I mean, they were, and hey, try smiling. Let, you know, you're happy. Let your face know it. Your body, your body gives off the, the feeling that you feel happy. Let your face know it. 
so everybody else can, around you can know that you are happy. Now, none of that phony stuff. People can tell when you're really... That's why I like kids. That's why I like... Well, let me, let me back up. I like kids... Uh, second, third grade and up. You want to see somebody turn into a babbling idiot real quick. Put me in a classroom of preschoolers. They can walk all over me in a heartbeat. High schoolers, not a problem. I just smack them upside the head. But preschoolers, mm. Because about the time of pre- well, I tell you what. Right now, we're pres- presently keeping one day a week. A uh, she's not even preschool. She's nine months old. Nine months old. Yeah. All she has to do is look at me and grin, and it's over. Whatever she wants, she's got. I'd, I'd be a terrible grandfather, because all they'd have to do would be grandpa, and that's it. They got it. You know. I mean, I'd be making flights to Disney World once a week. But again, let's go back to what we talked about, praying. Prayer. Do you know one of Jesus' last prayers was about you and about me? He prayed for his followers. He knew that we were going to accept him as Lord and Savior. And a prayer that he left with his apostles was, go and teach. We generally refer to it as the great commandment. Go out into the world and make disciples. Well, making disciples, we pray for followers. I used to tease down in Florida about the people in the last church we were in there, about them being my disciples. At first, they didn't follow; they weren't following what I was what I was saying. And after a little bit, they got it. They were all my all my followers. That could be good. It could be bad. By, by being my followers, and I told him, I said, now this actually comes from the Bible. Did you know that Paul told his followers to be just like him? Because he wanted to be just like Jesus. And so I say to you, you be my follower today, and you be just like me because I want to be just like Jesus. So it's okay to be my follower. Not in everything. But we do have an awful lot of things in common. There are times when you get upset in life. There are times when my wife gets upset. I never do. I was waiting, but she didn't say anything. But one of the things that we also have in common is the fact that we can pray. And there's a lot of things that we need to pray about together. And one is salvation for those who are lost. We need to pray about it, not just today. We need to be praying about it each and every day. Because as I said earlier, and I'm using this in a very, very wide definition. If Jesus comes back today, only one-third of the world's population. And as I said, that's a very wide estimate. Actually, it's much less than that. If you wanted to break down that one-third, I think you could honestly be safe in saying one-third of that one-third are actually going to go to heaven. So that means the vast majority of people that you're going to come in contact with this week, I'm going to come in contact this week, are on their way to hell. Do you think the Bible's right when it says that the, that the field is wide unto harvest? 
it's true. And some people, there used to be a song out years ago that talked about you're the only Jesus some people are ever going to see. And that's true. So unless you're showing them Jesus, they're going to go to hell without ever having heard the gospel. And we don't want that to happen to anyone. And especially don't want that to happen to anyone who might be here this morning. So if you're here this morning and you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, well, today's the day the Bible says of salvation. Today's the day for you to say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want to be part of your body, the church. Not just now, but for all of eternity. I don't know about you. Of course, none of us have any idea when Jesus is coming back. It could be today, it could be a thousand years from now, it could be a million years from now. But I'm looking forward to that day. Because the Bible says that we are going to meet Jesus in the air, and then we're going to go on with him to heaven. We know the Bible says that God created the earth and the universe that we're in in seven days. Jesus has been preparing heaven now for over 2,000 years. Look around the universe. What did he do in seven days? What do you think heaven's going to be like now that he's been working on it for over 2,000 years? I can't wait. Even if there weren't mansions in heaven, I still can't wait. Because I get to look at all of the apostles. I get to look at all the loved ones that have gone on before. I get to look at the face of Jesus. Now I know the Bible says there's no tears in heaven. But I still can't think of the fact that there there cannot be tears of joy. I think the first 10,000 years we're going to be in heaven, we're going to be crying. Joyful tears of the fact that we're there. We're with him. We're going to see him, and we're really, really going to get to know him, not just from the words of Scripture, but the Bible says we're going to be in his banquet. We're going to sit around a table with him for all of eternity and worship him. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as I said, today is the day of salvation. I want you to think about the fact that if he doesn't come today, You may have wasted the last opportunity you could possibly ever have. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we're here in this place, we pray that not only are we unified in our thought, and Father, unified in our deeds, what we do is when we leave this place, we go forward carrying your word upon our minds and upon our lips and in our heart. And Father, we share that word with the rest of the world that we come in contact with so they would know what we know about being a child of yours. We know, Father, that your word says that there's only going to be a remnant. But, Father, we have no idea how big that remnant is, how many should be in that remnant. All we know is we need to get the word out to a world that is literally dying, that needs to hear the good news before it's too late. Because the word says that when Jesus comes back, those who have rejected won't get the opportunity to greet him, to know him, to spend time with him. They'll be condemned to spend an eternity away from you in a place prepared for them where there is no joy, where there is only sorrow, 
where there is only pain and rejection. And we pray, Father, that those that we can save will hear the message. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.